talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is on the board. If you don't give out the Halloween candy, you'll only have to eat it. And that may be more detrimental to your health than COVID-19. Yeah. Here's Scott yeah. Thompson. That's it. You've got it now. You're just going to eat it. Might as well share it. Get it out there. That 12 pounds you put on over COVID-19, eh, it's not going to be helping that Halloween candy you're shoveling in your face. Uh, good afternoon. It is 3.09. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, Will is on the board. Ted and Diana here. Uh, and you know what? Diana picked the song today, and we bumped it. Sorry, Diana. <laughs> it, well, you know what? It wasn't one of my best Halloween picks. It was, you no. know... No, it's I'm going to save a, it, it and think about it and get a good one for later on this week. It's a very strong song, Diana, and it captures the spirit perfectly, but uh, I'm not sure you want to hear it every hour. Uh, so yeah. we're going to play it. We're going to play it on Halloween. The fr- Friday we're celebrating Halloween. So all the Halloween songs come out on oh, Friday. Oh, perfect then. That yeah. will be included. So like every segment, everything, everyone. So grab all the favorites and, uh, you know, we're coming. But I feel bad about that. I feel bad, oh, Diana, because I asked right. you to pick a song and then, you know, Purple People Eater. <laughs> Will, what do you think about that? <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> he was like, really? <laughs> that one? I know. I know. Well, I hear you. I'm just surprised. It made me think of something that's crossed my mind a couple times which is most of the halloween songs that we do have are several decades old now i'm thinking where's the halloween novelty tunes from arkell's or the weekend or drake no they're not singing i mean rihanna has Mm. disturbia that's kind of halloweeny yeah rihanna did one but yeah you you're right like i mean (laughs) but there's nothing like that dan 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 we're going out to halloween and scare Where's Where's Max? Get Max on the line, Diana. He's your buddy. You're hanging out with him at uh, the cafes of Hammerstown. Ask him, say, hey, I want to hear a little, uh, or maybe even a remake. Maybe yeah. get the Arkells to remake Monster Mash. Oh, no, yeah. that would be fantastic. Acoustic, too. <laughs> yeah. Acoustic. There you go. You make your own sound effects along the way. All right. Uh, thanks, Diana, as always. And uh, please don't be offended that we didn't play your song after I promote never, all the time never. how we pick your song. But it is coming up. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Uh, Ted and Diana will be joining us around the big round table coming up a little later on. Uh, should be exciting. Feel free to send us a note like Mike has. Scott Thompson at 900CHML. Uh, very good, Mike. This is hilarious. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed or if you've heard the, the news, and, and I don't think it's on the traffic report anymore, uh, but there was a plane on the 407 <laughs> uh, up near towards the Markham area. Buttonville Airport is there, and uh, there was, I shouldn't be laughing. It's lucky nobody was hurt. Uh, but everything, everybody's fine. Everything um, um, is, is fine in the sense that other than there's a, a small plane sitting in the 407, on the 407, uh, having some sort of problems and couldn't make the runway and ended up landing right on the highway. To which Mike writes, wait until he gets the bill from the 407, folks. Hoo-way! Office charge, camera charge, then a landing charge, refueling charge, uh, removal charge, baggage. Was there any peanuts served on the plane? Whew. Uh, driving that highway is bad enough. I can't, re- I can't imagine what it's like when you land your plane there. Although maybe because he's flying over, he's actually flying over the cameras. 
So you didn't really, maybe that's the key. You fly over the cameras, and, and then you get back down to the road, and you putt along, and you fly up over the next one, and then, um, yeah. Anyway, the great news in all of this, of course, uh, all are fine, thank goodness. Uh, and and uh, I guess a happy story, except, I guess, for the bill. You kind of wonder, who pays for that? What happens? Uh, as we all know, yesterday, Justin Trudeau uh, shuffled his cabinet, new cabinet in place, some uh, new faces, some old faces. Uh, but one of the most notable changes is uh, the defense minister is gone. And Anita Anand taking over the role of Minister of National Defense, of course, coming from procurement from uh, Oakville. And uh, Minister Sajan, uh, he has been moved to economic uh, development. We certainly know all of uh, the allegations in, in, in all of the history of what has been going on in the military. Uh, obviously, uh, Sajan, a member, uh, and obviously the new, uh, defense minister is not a complete change. And some may say the polar opposite. Is that what's needed? Let's bring in Christian Leprec, professor of both the Royal Military College of Canada, Queen's University, and a fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Christian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon, Scott. I am indeed. A pleasure to talk. So your thoughts here, how big of a step is this, is it? I think, so it signals a clear change in direction. The government had a choice, continuity or change. Change in the part of national defense always comes with the liability that it's a very complex entity with a lot of moving parts. So there's a steep learning curve here. You know, 100,000 people who work for the Department of the Canadian Armed Forces, a quarter of the federal government's direct spending, and of course, a host of complex files and operations. Uh, but uh, I think there's sort of a, a message here that the government, uh, not just the government was looking for change, but that I think it understood that uh, especially the women, men, and diverse members who serve in uniform uh, were not, I think, feeling entirely comfortable with the political leadership or lack thereof that came from the previous minister. It's also interesting, of course, that they picked someone who doesn't have military experience, which is mm-hmm. aligned with the Westminster tradition. So uh, obviously, uh, uh, the new minister is not a member. Uh, how is this going to be received within the military? Many would think, boy, we'd rather have one of ours in there. They know the systems. They know what we're all about. Or is the polar opposite in this case uh, the way to go? How do you think the members are feeling about this? The Westminster tradition is to appoint someone who's not a specialist, is to appoint someone who's a generalist. And that's certainly what we're getting here. Somebody who's a high performer as a previous cabinet minister, uh, who's an intellectual, a high-flying professor. Um, so I think the this is less about um, whether someone has worn the uniform or not. And it is more about leadership. It is about political direction, setting a clear, providing clear plans, um, and following through to implement those um, as a way of restoring, I think, confidence and trust, in particular in the uniformed membership. Um, but I think also an opportunity here for the minister to uh, set course, set a new direction, and show uh, that uh, she has a clear grip on the department of the challenges facing the department. And there are several key decisions that await here, including appointing uh, a permanent chief of the defense staff. And so the minister has a relative quick opportunity to demonstrate uh, that she's going to ta- show leadership. Is the biggest challenge here for this new minister the personnel and these issues that we're speaking of or on the operational side? 
So the personnel file is, of course, immediately pressing uh, in terms of some of the frustrations that are playing the membership. Uh, and it also has second order effects on recruitment. It has having, having serious consequences for retention, uh, as the acting chief of defense staff pointed out in remarks uh, a day ago. Um, but there are also a host of other complex files. Think of the Canadian surface combatants. Uh, the government is looking to buy new fighter jets. Uh, the government has to engage in NORAD renewal, what the Americans call NORAD Next, which no one knows what it looks like, and it's going to be difficult negotiations uh, with the United States. Uh, so there is a host of things on this minister's platter uh, that she's going to have to have to move on fairly expeditiously, uh, and so it's a number of balls to ch- for her to juggle. So, Christian, do you view this change as positive change for the military? Um, I think it is an opportunity for someone who demonstrated themselves to be very effective in a portfolio that's usually a pretty sleepy portfolio, that is to say public services and procurement, um, where when she had to step up and sign vaccine contracts, uh, she was quite uh, innovative and aggressive to make sure that that would happen. Uh, So um, I think there's an opportunity here for her to do likewise. And I think uh, Minister Anand is not someone to be underestimated as a professor. She didn't have to go into politics. This is something she chose to do, Um, and uh, I'm sure she had a choice as to whether she would take on the Defense Department or not. And so um, it comes with considerable risks for her, but it also comes with considerable opportunities for her uh, to demonstrate uh, that uh, she can be uh, an effective leader uh, in what might very well be the most difficult and complex department in the entire uh, government portfolio. Christian Leprac with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, talking about a new uh, person in the role of Minister of National Defense. Christian, thanks for the time and insight. As always, be well. My pleasure. Thank you, Scott. Have a good afternoon. We have talked at length on this show about uh, with the people from Dignity uh, in dying and uh, in about medical assistance in dying and such uh, over the years as we've seen uh, these laws change uh, across the province, across the country. And uh, here's something that um, a, a new service that has come out of this, which uh, I'd never even thought of before, but a London, a London, Ontario funeral home has pivoted to offer space for those seeking uh, medical assistance in dying in an environment other than a hospital or their home. To talk more about all of this from the Northview Funeral Chapel, Paul Needham is with us. Paul, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yep, happy to be here, Scott. So tell us about this service. How did this come about? Uh, well, I was listening to you earlier. Yeah, I didn't think of it either. But uh, at any rate, uh, shortly after uh, COVID was set upon us, we probably March or so of last year, uh, I received a call from the local coordinator for MAIDS, the medically, medically, Medical Assistance in Dying. And uh, they said they were in a bit of a uh, predicament in that they had uh, uh, individuals that were desirous of this, uh, this procedure, but there was no place for them to go. And uh, the hospitals couldn't accommodate because of the lockdown. Uh, the nursing homes, the same idea. Uh, hospice didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, and, uh, and I think, too, uh, some people were hesitant to do this at home uh, for fear they'd, they'd never, you know, uh, lose the, that image, I guess, from their mind. Uh, so they were looking for an alternative location, and uh, I was asked if I would consider it, uh, consider it and I said, well, of course, I'd be, I'd be happy to help. So that's, that's really how it got started. It was a, a byproduct of COVID. 
So this was something, a service that grew out of a need as a result of the global pandemic. People wanted an option here. Well, uh, I, I agree. And, uh, you know, it's not something that I had foreseen. Uh, but certainly when uh, someone expressed an interest in using my facility, I thought, well, you know, why the heck wouldn't you? Uh, it's something I can do to, to help them out. And uh, it's proven to be a, a, a wonderfully effective idea. I think uh, since then, Scott, we've served, I think, 22 or 23 families uh, in that regard since then. Wow. Uh, and and I, I was reading in an article about this that the reason for this, some family members said they didn't, although some wish to die at home, they did not want that image with them, perhaps when they pass the room, what have you, which is completely understandable. I, I think that's, that has certainly something uh, to do with it. Uh, and then, uh, of course, the uh, the other thing is, is that because we I've been dealing with this uh, type of business for 37, 38 years, and uh, I know how people feel. And and so I, I thought that, you know what, I think there's a need here, and, and I think we can respond to it well, and I think we can make people, uh, under those dreadful circumstances, I think we can make them as, as, as comfortably as one might expect them to be. And has the, re- has the response all been positive? Uh, it, thus far, it certainly has. Uh, now that it's gotten some airplay uh, through the likes of yourself or the CBC yesterday, uh, I don't know if I'll get any negative feedback on it, but uh, uh, so far, uh, it's been viewed as something that's entirely helpful, and the families that have uh, utilized uh, my facility for that purpose have all said, you know what, this uh, it was very well done. They were very comfortable with the way things uh, evolved, and uh, so so far, uh, I, I've not had a complaint out of anyone. I've had uh, only accolades and thanks. So obviously, this is something you had never done before. You had never had this request before. How do you accommodate? How did you decide what this would be like? Well, my my recommendation to any family considering this is that they uh, they come to the funeral home if they're able, uh, particularly the individual that's going to take that provision. And uh, I I think it's it, it tremendously enhances their comfort level if they're if they're there to see the facility. And uh, we also will invite them to uh, check out the entire building and choose the area where they feel most comfortable. Uh, some people may wish to have this take place uh, beside one of the fireplaces. Others may say, you know, I want to be here by the window so I can see outside. We're, we're all different. And so uh, at the, when it comes to that time, uh, we still remain so. We are all different. We all have different wants and different needs. So we do our best to accommodate them. I suggest families bring with them perhaps, you know, mom or dad or whoever it is that we're, we're doing this for, bring, bring some of their favorite music. I, I've suggested, you know, bring a, bring a bottle of wine, uh, bring some, some crudite or some foodstuffs. And, and families have taken me up on this, and uh, they'll meet, and they'll be there sometimes for two and three hours uh, to share some very significant family time uh, before this takes place. So uh, very, very highly charged uh, emotional moment. Uh, and you certainly have to be careful in how you how you deal with that sort of thing. And how is that, and maybe and if I'm off base here, help me, Paul, but it, how is that a different experience from what you normally would do? The emotions well, of it. Uh, not not physically, but the emotions. Well, I don't know. That's funny. My, my, when I, I, I get more emotional, it seems, the longer I'm in the business. You know, I thought I'd grow more or less inured to it over time, but yet, you know, I don't. Anyways, I... I become more emotionally uh, involved all, all, all the time, and and sometimes that's that's difficult for me too. Uh, but uh, we simply do our best to to help families through a time that uh, we've been through ourselves, uh, and uh, 
my father died at an all too young age, my mom, my, both my parents and a number of good friends. So knowing how it feels, uh, I think that enables us to uh, basically walk a mile in their shoes and help them in a very meaningful way. Do you see this continuing and growing even post-pandemic? Yes, I do. Yep. I don't think it's something that's uh, uh, that's going to go away. And, uh, you know, I, I've, I've felt many times that uh, should I ever be diagnosed with something horrendous that's going to take my life, uh, before it, it turned so horrible, uh, I'd like to do the same thing. Wow, incredible. Uh, a London, Ontario funeral home has pivoted to offer space for those seeking medical assistance in dying in an environment other than a hospital or their home. Paul Needham has been with his Northview Funeral Chapel. Paul, thank you so much for explaining a very sensitive issue uh, with us, and uh, good luck moving forward with all of this. Okay, glad to help. Thank you, Scott. Be well. The truth and only the truth. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. All right. It seemed once uh, uh, there were bodies found be- uh, beneath the former site of a residential school in Kamloops. The discussion around truth and reconciliation changed for Canadians. Uh, and, and maybe that is the reason Pope Francis is set to visit Canada, or at least talking about it, in an effort to work towards reconciliation with Indigenous communities. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Ken Coates is with us, Canada Research Chair uh, with the School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan and Senior Fellow of Aboriginal and Northern Canadian Issues with the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well. Good to be with you. So what do we know here, Ken? What do, What is going to happen and what's just uh, speculation at this point? Well, what's happened is that the Vatican has indicated the Pope is willing to come over to North America and uh, negotiations, discussions are underway about uh, finding an appropriate date, time and place uh, for these. Um, Pope's visits are not easy to organize. They're extremely high profile, they often involve you know thousands of people sort of coming to see the Pope and what have you. Um, so this is an extraordinary step uh, coming out of extraordinary circumstances. And it was what First Nations and Métis and Inuit people have been asking for. Um, they were planning a, a meeting sort of in November where Indigenous leaders from Canada were going to go over and speak to the Pope. And mm-hmm. at that time, they were they were going to extend an invitation for him to come over. Um, so, in fact, what's happening is that that conversation will now focus on on what he will come and where the Pope will visit and what might be said. So it's a, it's a significant step. It's a bit too late. Um, it, it comes sort of not spontaneously, but after a bit of a bit of pressure. But nonetheless, it's important. So what is the purpose of this visit, Ken? Is it all about truth and reconciliation or is it just a Canadian visit, a North American visit? And that'll be worked into the agenda somewhere. I think this is first and foremost a, a, a visit about reconciliation. Um, what's happened with the situation, because as you mentioned about the unmarked graves, is it's really actually shown government policy and church policy in a very unfavorable light. For some reason, uh, kind of easy, not easy to explain, but you understand it, that the unmarked graves really got to Canadians. And Canadians uh, changed this from, uh, the Canadian reaction has changed this from an Indigenous issue into a, a Canadian issue. Lots of people are making the same demands. It's not just First Nations, Métis, Inuit people saying, the Pope should come over. It's Catholics all across the country and non-Catholics across the country saying the church has got to get on the on the right side on this issue. So there's immense pressure to sort of do something uh, to respond. And I think Canadians over the last four or five months have, have been all these puzzled stories about promises that were made about you know, payments that would come and they didn't come, um, how they, they sort of double counted activities and 
know, for example, money that was supposed to be spent on reconciliation was spent on on translating, uh, you know, the Bible into different indigenous languages. Well, that that's something a church should do for other purposes and for other sources. So all these pieces were making the church look not just bad but worse. And so I think you got a situation here where the demand is now a a pan-Canadian demand that the church do something, uh, and the church is is doing something. Uh, it's always better. Go ahead. Uh, obviously, um, uh, this is going to take time, and there, there's a lot to go into this, but should we not know uh, the agenda, the purpose, before this whole exercise starts, instead of, well, I wonder if he's going to apologize or not, I wonder what he's going to say, or then comes over, says something, and we are, we're all left to interpret what it was, and in the end, it's just all smoke and mirrors. Uh, should this not all be laid out ahead of time? Here's what's going to happen. It, it should, and, that, and your point is well taken. Um, but quite frankly, if the church made those announcements without extended conversations in person uh, with Indigenous representatives, it would be reinforcing a pattern. Uh, this is not something a church should do unilaterally. Uh, to do this properly, the church should reach out to Indigenous leaders, Indigenous communities, the Catholic members of the, church, of, of, of the Indigenous population, and say, what should we do, where should we do it, and what should it look like? Uh, we've actually went through this before when, when the Pope was scheduled to come, a different Pope, obviously, uh, to come to Fort Simpson in the Northwest Territories. And then the whole thing was called off because of bad weather. And then he eventually came back again at a different, a different time. These are extraordinarily difficult things to organize, organize properly. They are far more important uh, to Indigenous people than I think most Canadians would recognize. There are very large numbers of Indigenous people who are still faithful adherents of the, of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and so this means an awful lot. The starting point should be conversation with Indigenous leaders, a preemptive declaration, even if even if it's a de- declaration about apology, um, is it, not the right way to go. Uh, if you come over and say you're sorry, we've seen this with the Prime Minister, he said he's sorry so many times, it yeah. almost automatically comes out of his mouth. It doesn't mean very much. You want, to, you want the, the Pope to come over and say, I'm sorry for the following reasons. I'm sorry because what we did had the following implications, and here's what we're going to do to deal with the outcome. That comes out of a conversation. It doesn't come out of a universal, you know, one-sided declaration. Could this hurt relations rather than help, if not enough? It, it really could, actually, because, and, and, and we've seen this actually happen over, even with the church's initial apology on, on residential schools and the promise of compensation. Big headlines, we're going to provide $25 million, et cetera, et cetera. Then the money doesn't come out. And when they actually do the accounting, it finds that it came out in some very um, controversial ways, to say the least. Um, and it actually ended up making things much, much worse. So done properly, this could be a major transformative event, not just for Catholics, not just for First Nations, Inuit, Métis people, but for the whole country. If the Roman Catholic Church, which is a, a massively important international institution, is prepared to say, we did it wrong, we're going to do it differently, we listen to Indigenous people, and here's how we're going to do it differently, this could actually set a marker for the rest of society in terms of dealing with a very troubled relationship. So it's not, it's, do it right. it's not just the indigenous community anymore, Ken. This is Canadian history. This is our history, whether we're related to it or not. And I think Canadians now want to face that. Uh, out of time, Ken, we're going to have you back. Dr. Ken Coates, Canada Research Chair with uh, the Graduate School of Public Policy, University of Saskatchewan, and Senior Fellow of Aboriginal and Northern Canadian Issues at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Ken, thanks so much for your time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're always welcome. Take care. The plane landing on the 407. Holy smokes. 
Um, this is in around the Woodbine area, the 407. In case you haven't heard, this happened earlier today. A small plane uh, landed on the 407, and um, <laughs> that was bizarre. And and luckily, nobody was hurt. The plane landed safely, and uh, almost like it's merging into traffic. And with the video that you're seeing, you almost you, you have to really really concentrate on seeing the plane coming down the highway and then it lands and then goes under an overpass and then eventually comes to a stop so the pilot somehow brings it down after a bridge but before the underpass and then just keeps rolling to a stop almost like it was merging into traffic thank goodness it's a 407 which is uh, a very very extremely overpriced toll highway so nobody was on it like, there wasn't many tra- much traffic on it because everybody's clogging up the other highways. If this had been on the 401, the 404, or the 400, this would have been a completely different scenario. Uh, but again, traffic was extremely light on the 407. And as a result of this, um, the, the landing was very successful. Here's a report from the OPP's Carrie Schmidt uh, from earlier today on what happened. The uh, pilot and the instructor in the airplane... Uh, did a forced emergency landing here on Highway 407 eastbound. Uh, wide stretch of highway here, no power lines, uh, and uh, we're able to make a, a safe and successful uh, forced landing here on Highway 407. We're just speaking to uh, both the pilot and the instructor here as well, trying to figure out what happened. Uh, the airplane had been recently maintained. Uh, this was its maiden voyage uh, after being inspected. So obviously they're going to be looking into you know, what uh, what took place. Uh, apparently run-up was fine at the uh, on the ground prior to takeoff. Uh, airplane had been in the air for just a couple of minutes uh, before uh, they experienced uh, a problem. Good uh, foresight on uh, respect to the pilots involved. Able to find a safe location to uh, put the airplane down. Did that without any uh, issues, uh, no damage to the airplane, no injuries to anybody in the airplane or on the ground, no other vehicles involved. And uh, we're just waiting for officials from uh, uh, the airport. They're here as well. Mechanics are here as well. Uh, the airplane will very likely be towed uh, or floated out of here, uh, returned back to the airport before it uh, is uh, powered back up and uh, attempts to go fly again. Wow. Uh, unbelievable. Unbelievable to see this footage. Uh, uh, imagine this plane coming, you, you know, uh, directly along over top of a highway, trying to find the perfect place to land while it is having uh, engine trouble. And you can see the prop on the plane barely turning when when you f- it finally does rel- get relatively close to where uh, the highway camera was. But as I mentioned, uh, he came down over top of an overpass and then brought the plane down onto the road in time to go underneath, uh, like one of those structures that holds up the signs. So uh, incredible. And again, luckily, there was the, the traffic was extremely light, and it, it basically he found an empty spot. He landed in the traffic that was coming up behind him. Imagine sitting there and looking up your sunroof and, and seeing like the wheel of a plane or the belly of a plane. And, oh, better tap the brakes there, honey. It looks like he needs some room. And then down it comes. And uh, now uh, we're seeing live shots of it or shots of it. Uh, yeah, they load the thing onto the back of a flatbed truck and I guess trying to get it out of here or out of there uh, in the Woodbine and 407 area 
not far from Buttonville Airport where it took off from. So, um, man, um, uh, great uh, thinking on the t- on the part of the pilots. And uh, obviously, thank goodness, uh, nobody was hurt in this uh, whatsoever. Uh, un- unbelievable to see. I highly recommend. We'll try to get the footage up for you uh, as soon as we can. It's the big round table. And, uh, man, I can't stop looking at this footage of this plane coming down on the 407. Uh, we were talking about it earlier. It is absolutely miraculous that nobody was hurt. And what's fascinating, as you see the plane come down, uh, it then approaches the camera. So you have to look very far up the screen to actually see the plane touch down and it goes over top of a uh, of a bridge and then lands before one of those giant overhangs that holds the site the signs and then just eventually cruises to a halt can you imagine how would you feel ted if you're sitting there and you look up and you and you see like a plane's landing gear almost touch your roof you know it's it's scary but diana and i were talking earlier let's just be thankful first of all yeah. nobody got you know hurt or seriously injured but let's be thankful that it was the 407 which yeah. is not as heavily traveled to say oh i don't know the 401 around the Allen, you know, exactly. the basket That's, weave as it were. So thank goodness the rates of the 407 are so astronomically high that nobody drives on it because that's the first thing I said to Will when I saw this is that there was no traffic. He sort of found a spot between cars, and then once people saw the plane coming down, they gave him room. Again, you know, this reminds me uh, the movie Casino when they're yeah. all sitting around the house and the plane lands, uh, glides down to, a, you know, a landing on the golf course, and, and the Joe Pesci, let's see if we can have the plane with anyway <laughs> but 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 the point is you watch the plane glide in and it's like yeah. so so kudos to the pilot for being able to do this it's a sullian effort that's for sure yeah. and you know i experience this when i have an anxiety dream and wake up sweating in the middle of the night i've done this in my dream in a jet plane so uh for me it was just absolutely uh mind-blowing does anybody have a fear of flying diana does this does this change your perception of flying at all? Nah, I don't have a yeah. fear of flying. I like flying. Yeah, I don't mind it at all. I think this was great what this pilot did. My question is, uh, he totally flew past the transponder on the 407, so are they going to build it? <laughs> a listener actually sent me that note. Imagine the charge this person's going to get. The <laughs> yeah, camera. Totally. The you take it to your charge. boss. Yeah. The boss they, says, get away. Say, you pay yourself. They, yeah, it's 15 bucks to get from one exit to the other. Can you imagine this guy? <laughs> Plus a refueling stop oh. and, you know, baggage. And if anybody had peanuts on the plane, Lord oh, knows what's going to happen. What if they think he's trying to cheat the system, too? Is he going to get fined for that for skipping over? Exactly, right? You know what? I actually got a note from a listener that thought it might have been a stunt. Maybe it's maybe it's a Red Bull commercial. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. All right, poll question of the day. You're ready for winter. Let's go around the horn on this. Uh, I'm not sure if we're ready, expecting it. I mean, you know, it comes around every year, or if this is just about the changing of the seasons. I do love the changing of the seasons, although everybody thinks I hate fall now. Uh, <laughs> but but are you are you ready, Ted? Nope. <laughs> no, no. I'm Snow not. tires aren't on? No. When I heard the report yesterday uh, on CHML News, yesterday or the day before, um, that the global weather meteorologist was saying it's going to be uh, you know, a, a, a white Christmas, I thought, yeah. first of all, A, how does he know? And then B, when they talk about La Nina coming in, it's like, no, no, yeah. no, no. I, you know, I love the fall. 
I don't like what happens after the fall. And I always say, everybody says, well, you got to have a white winter. Where is it written? Show me. A white Christmas. <laughs> where? Where is the proof? Bing, because think, Bing wants a white Christmas. I believe Bing Crosby yes, exactly. decided what that. Gives, what gives him the right? My aunt in Arizona would disagree with Bing. <laughs> yeah, see, so no, I'm no. You know what? Who says it has to be snowy? I do, I do. Okay, I I love my snow at Christmas. I love my snow in the winter. And you know what? I've had friends that have lived on the coast in British Columbia, or in Vancouver rather, and they, you know, although the summers are and springs and falls are absolutely spectacular, the winter can be really dreary because it's just solid rain for yep. the whole yeah. winter season. I don't know if I'd want that. I think I like the snow as well. Plus, you know, if, uh, if you're a guy like me, you like to get the toys out like the snowblower and stuff, you know. But maybe only a half a dozen times a year. That's about it. All right, uh, let's move on. And uh, your best Halloween costume. It doesn't have to be yours. It doesn't have to be something that came to the door. It could have been at a party. Whether, but the best Halloween costume you have ever seen uh, on your years in the uh, with your years on the planet, Ted. I like the ones. Um, and it was a couple of years ago. Somebody started. It was like. Uh, Mustard and relish, or mustard Aww, and ketchup. No, no, I, I, I like those because it's creative. Salt and pepper. It's creative. And then there's me who gets dressed up like a crusty used man every year, and people know what it is. <laughs> but you always win because you bang, you you're see? bang on. <laughs> see, so, so I like those. You know, I, I, I like people that you know put a little bit of creativity into it. But, but I like that. You know, mustard relish. You know. Diana? Dog, whatever. Uh, I'm just thinking, wh- I'm I'm just seeing that drive-in thing with the bun jumping into the dog <laughs> and the whatever. No, oh, Sorry, dear. Diana? Yeah, I uh, those are the cop-out costumes, oh! man. I don't like those at all. Oh. Uh, you know, but I will say that I do enjoy those inflatable T-Rex costumes that I see people in. Uh, <laughs> a bunch of kids a couple years ago went trick-or-treating in our neighborhood wearing those, and it was just hilarious watching them walk down the street. It's really well, funny. Uh, you know what? I think the one that stands out to me, uh, grade four, my uh, principal at uh, W.H. Morden, shout out, uh, vice principal had one of those costumes set up where he was in a cage walking around and then had like a dummy version of one of the apes from Planet of the Apes carrying him. Oh, and he no. was like bent, hunched over the whole day. So it looked like he was trapped inside this thing being carted about. Can it was you get awesome. away with that now? Would that be some sort of violating some sort of, some sort of rule? I don't know. I, you know, I'm with Ted. I like the ones that are a combo, although Diana might, you know, uh, <laughs> frown on this. It's all right. I remember, but I, I used to have my own disc jockey company when I, was, when I was a kid from like 15 to 25 and used to play a lot of Halloween parties. Uh, back to the 80s, 90s, I remember some Somebody, and they made these with big boxes, a cassette, and then a Walkman. So then the girl would go in, and then they'd close the case, right? Perfect. But the most imaginative one I'd ever seen, I was playing for some doctors on a hospital row, and a man and a woman came as uh, the private parts of the human anatomy. Oh, so the my. woman. The woman was everything with giant fallopian tubes, and then the man was everything. And my goodness, people couldn't stop laughing the whole night. That's the winner for me. They won the prize. I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, we're just talking about um, the story that's uh, out today that the Pope is uh, considering, looking, planning a trip to Canada to uh, obviously work on the relationship with the Indigenous community. And we we were talking about that and, and why this is now resonating in, in the, the Kamloops Residential School uh, discovery of the unmarked graves. I think that has certainly highlighted it and, and motivated 
motivated Canadians to take a closer look. But I think what this also has something to do with is Canadians' identity. We're a country of immigrants. So, uh, yeah, I remember being a young kid. We, Canada doesn't have an identity. It's too young. Uh, you know, Canadian content. We need to prove our Canadian. We have an identity. We just chose to ignore it for a hundred and some odd years. That's all. And now we feel like we're an adopted child in a country that really isn't ours. And we've just met the brothers and sisters of the real family. I think this has more to do with Canadians learning the history of their country, even though they're not in an indigenous community, even though they're immigrants here in some form over the generations. But we have had no history because we've never learned it. Now we can. And perhaps like an adopted child that has found its, its peace, its family in some way, we can do the same as Canadians. Think about that for a while. All right, let's bring in Henry Jasek to talk about something completely different. Professor of political science, McMaster University. Uh, of course, the uh, Prime Minister unveiled his new cabinet yesterday after uh, the election that we just went through. And we brought Henry in to talk about all of that. Henry, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. The sun is shining, so I'm happy. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's talk about Defense Minister. That's one of the big ones. Uh, obviously, uh, Defense Minister, former Defense Minister Sajan, some issues there uh, with the behavior in the military. Now, Anita Anan, uh, the Procurement Minister, who did a great job uh, with vaccines and such in that role. How difficult is this going to be? Is this the beginning of something? How, how do you? What are your thoughts on this? Well, there's, there's a big there's a big hole to fill in here in terms of things to be done, uh, but. I was impressed. I mean, I've been listening to her uh, lately, and uh, she seems to be really a solid person, you know, seems to have a lot of confidence in what she's going to do, has an idea of what she's going to do. But I think she recognizes this is going to be a really tough push. When you're trying to change the culture of a major institution like the military, uh, that takes a little bit of time. (laughs) But uh, it has to be done. Uh, and do you think she is going to, uh, you have to wonder how the members, the rank and file are feeling about this, because normally if you've got someone who's been a member, they know what's going on. Obviously this is going to be the polar opposite, but is this what they need to really institute change? Well, sometimes you have to bring in an outsider, uh, to the top of an organization to sort of make the reforms that are necessary. I mean, now, sometimes the outsider can really make a mess of things because they don't understand. But I think she's had enough, you know, I'm sure this issue has been discussed quite a bit over the cabinet table, even though it wasn't her portfolio. So I think she has a pretty good sense of, you know, what, what, what has to be done and what, where the pitfalls are. And uh, I just, I, I have a certain amount of confidence in her. Uh, what about the changes at environment and climate change? Stephen Gibal. Well, the, yeah, the environment's an interesting one. Uh, everybody's sort of, you know, paying attention to the fact that the people in Alberta are very, very upset. I think, I mean, uh, okay, I recognize that, but I, my, my view is I, I want to, I think about what does the prime minister want to get out of this, and why did he do this? And I don't think he did it to make the people in uh, Alberta unhappy. I don't think uh, really at this point in his uh, career. Uh, really, he cares a great deal about how people in Alberta probably feel because I think he feels let down when he uh, did things for what he thought were good things for Alberta uh, in the in the beginning of his uh, uh, prime ministership six years ago, and he got very little credit for it. And I think he's just more or less given up, if you 
want to know the truth on people in Alberta ever really liking him. So he's, he's put in a, uh, an environmental minister who will appeal to, I think, green voters. And I think uh, he, he sees an opportunity to pull those green voters to support uh, the government. Uh, a lot of those people, when we look at the surveys and we say, who's a green voter? What, what were they before that they were, the, the Green Party was around? A majority of them actually were liberals. So they yeah. weren't really far on the left. They really were liberals. And when you ask them another question, uh, if there was no Green Party, who would you vote for? Uh, almost 60% say, well, we would vote liberal. So I think Trudeau has seen that, knows, or at least his advisors have, and said, listen, let's go after the green voters. We're not going to get any more voters in Alberta to like us and support us. Well, let's go after the green voters. And, you know, we know there's a bunch in British Columbia, to be sure. There's, there's ones in Quebec and there's ones in Ontario. And let's go after them. So I think that's, that's the meaning of, of that, uh, you know, of that appointment. And also, I think Trudeau has a feeling that is, uh, you know, as, as militant as the new minister has been in his previous life, I think Trudeau probably feels he can control them. So, that, and I think that's very yeah. There's shots of this guy climbing buildings and doing all kinds of oh, yeah, uh, weird and wacky yeah, activist stuff. Yeah, you, yeah. You go on and you look and see what he's done and and the pictures and everything that he's done. Yeah, he's had has had a pretty exciting life, but I think and, he's calmed down now. <laughs> yeah, and maybe this is my uh, me being naive here, uh, Henry. But you know, you you said this is all about getting the green f- uh, voters, yeah. uh, which to me equals rhetoric. Uh, is this really not about here's a guy that can really implement some strong policy get some strong result get this ship moving or is it all about the chatter well i think it's well, there's two things i mean you when you're when you know these people have to worry about policy number one but they also have to worry about politics so you'll have to see how the two things work together i think he will be able to get things done and and i think he could be make happy the people who are very strong green people at least that's how the prime minister sees it and i think but i suspect He's still smarting from the fact that he's had two two last elections, still gave him a minority. I think he's very happy about all that. And I think he's already thinking, okay, how can I get go in the next election and get my majority back again? And I think this is a part of the strategy that he's gone for. And, and we can see it in other things that he's done in the cabinet. I think he's doing things in the cabinet that corrects mistakes he made earlier on, because those mistakes he made earlier on when he had his majority, I think, have contributed to the two minorities. And so we see, so this is one, the, the environmental file is one of these, and uh, trying to make sure the Green Party, you know, basically is not a problem anymore for him. And also, I think uh, you might, I've looked at a lot of the titles and what these people have to do, and there's so many uh, local uh, developmental or organizations they're in charge of, uh, development and which this really uh, sort of fills a hole that uh, he he created when he got rid of what we used to, what we called regional ministers. Now most people wouldn't know what I'm talking about, but what you up until uh, uh, 2015, uh, go, the government normally had regional ministers. They the the prime minister would select some of his ministers in certain places to say, okay, you're in charge of a certain area politically. And that means you've got to make sure the party is strong in that area, that funds come in uh, to the party, that you have to you'll have a voice on how money yeah. is spent in your area, and you you also have to make sure you've got good candidates for the next election. And that worked beautifully 
for, for many, many years in Canada. But he decided, he said, I'm going to do politics differently. And what he did is he abolished these regional ministers. Yeah. And what happened, the ministers and the MPs sort of got, in some places, got, you know, uh, you know, uh, dis, dis, uh, disorganized, and we're not uh, really on the same page. And I think that has been a problem. And I think these these uh, local um, there's about six or seven of them I can't remember of of the these regional um, organizations that are really t- designed to make sure that certain regions basically have a co- coordinated uh, economic plan. So the government is spending money not first of all to you know to do the development, but also they also want to get the credit for it. So they also have to think about how you how you get credit for doing these sort of things. And that means you have to have, you know, a minister steering all of this, the, the policy and the communications. Henry Jasek with, her, uh, with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, talking about the cabinet shuffle. Henry, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Okay, very good. Thank you. All right. Uh, yesterday we were all, uh, uh, the lid came off the garbage and, and you know, <laughs> There's all kinds of confusion and, and such. So we have some clarity today. Uh, Angela Story, Director of Voice Management from the City of Hamilton, was on with Rick Zamprin this morning on Good Morning Hamilton and uh, and added some clarity to all of this. So uh, the first question was, uh, here is what listeners need to know about this trash lid situation. So uh, we have taken a, a report to update a few spots in our bylaw to Public Works Committee last week. So today at uh, the council meeting, they'll be approving the updated bylaw. And the item related to the lids was, uh, in the past, we've always had a weight and a volume maximum for our garbage and our yard waste containers. And the update that we're putting through the bylaw uh, this week is related to a maximum height of 91 centimeters, a maximum diameter of 61 centimeters, and that the lids not be hinged so that they be able to be fully removed when the collectors arrive at the curb to pick up your can. So uh, residents can absolutely put their garbage out or their yard waste out with a lid on their container. We just want to make sure that it can be fully removed uh, when the collectors arrive to pick them up. Uh, What about not having any lid on your can? Of course, people don't have to have a lid on their garbage when they put it out. Uh, Typically, people want to have a lid on their garbage if they live in an area where animals might like to get into their waste after they put it out at the curb. On windy days, uh, sometimes litter escapes uh, out the top of a garbage can. So uh, the lid is there just to avoid that from happening. Uh, What about lids, keeping lids in place on windy days so they don't blow down the street? We always talk about wind tunnels, and there seems to be a lot of them in Hamilton area. So, uh, yeah, uh, you know, in our discussion at Public Works Committee, not that we want the lids blowing down the street in any way. Uh, The hope is after the waste is empty, things are placed back on the curb uh, the way that they were put out. Um, And we would rather have the lids and the containers sitting there on the curb than having the litter, uh, you know, blowing around down the streets, especially products and garbage now because we have green carts. uh, A lot of garbage is right so it's more likely that uh, garbage would blow away if it wasn't contained. And what about fines for all of this? It's uh, any bylaw that we have in the city of Hamilton. If people offend it enough times, it would be uh, fine. And so the it's actually a separate piece in the bylaw. And there's a number of items in there: uh, putting out bulk waste, you know, three days early. Um, or, you know, earlier than your garbage day, putting out your garbage and not bringing it in if it was stickered, for example, Um, garbage always being too heavy. 
So the fines are, uh, we have to submit our fine schedule off to the Ministry of the Attorney General. And so the Ministry of the Attorney General had asked us to update the paragraph in our bylaw in order to submit our uh, fine schedule to them. And we've always had a fine schedule with them. Uh, The City of Hamilton, we educate first. Uh, So we work with uh, residents and business owners if they have any issues with putting their waste out or how to properly sort it, et cetera. So we work with them, and if at some point we feel that we're unable to kind of make that change uh, in the way that it's being put out or not brought back in, et cetera, we would move that over to the bylaw group. And then bylaw would work with that resident or that business owner. And if at some point they feel that they're not making any uh, kind of forward movement with that uh, waste product, then they would be able to assess that fine. All right, that's Angela Story, Director of uh, Waste Management for the City of Hamilton, talking to Rick Zamprin this morning on Good Morning America. Addings, or Good Morning America, Good Morning Hamilton, uh, which is heard in America, you know. They get it in Buffalo like that. Uh, anyway, uh, adding some clarity to the situation around the garbage can lid. And at the end of the day, it's common sense here. Uh, they're obviously, uh, you know, garbage collectors. It's, they're moving. It's, it's, you know, they got to keep going and they don't want to spend a lot of time at each place. So, you know, if the person's spending, um, you know, uh, an above average amount of time just trying to get your lid off, then, uh, clearly, you know, it's not working. And, and, you know, here's a great experience. Uh, or a great experiment, rather, um, before you take the garbage out, just try to get the lid off. And if you can get it off relatively easy, then chances are you're safe. Um, you know, bungee cords and, and, and obviously hinges uh, an issue, as some of those containers can get uh, can get pretty big. So uh, hopefully that adds some clarity. And uh, at the end of the day, we're all just trying to get along here. So uh, do your part to do your best. Uh, to keep this uh, system moving as efficiently as uh, it possibly can. So, have you thought about the holiday season? Have you thought about Christmas? How much are you going to spend? Are you going to spend more? Canadians are looking to spend, shop, and spoil each other even more this holiday season. Michelle Wasilishin is with us of the Retail Council of Canada. Good afternoon, Michelle. Hope you're doing well. Great, thank you. So we're hearing that, uh, and I'm not sure if this is a result of of a global pandemic or what, but uh, this year, uh, this holiday season, consumers are going to dig a bit deeper and spend a little bit more. Whereas in past years, we've been saying, well, you know, sometimes they're going to cut back, they're going to be more cautious, but it seems to be full steam ahead uh, this year, Michelle. Are you seeing the same thing? That's what we believe as well, and it's great news for retailers. So last week, Retail Council uh, released our fourth annual holiday shopping survey, and we do that each year in conjunction with Leger. And what we found is that um, those that we interviewed, so we interviewed 2,500 Canadians across Canada, and we have found that they are looking forward to returning to their pre-pandemic holiday traditions. Um, so in-person celebrations, shopping at brick- bricks and mortar stores, and more gift giving. So definitely a shift from last year, and uh, it's great news for everybody. Is this why do you think that is? Because many thought, and, and we saw this, uh, you know, Amazon, whatever, uh, going through the roof simply because people were at home, they had money, and they were spending. What's different this year? Just the fact that they can get out, the spirit is there. I think they can get out. The spirit is there. Last year, we were being um, advised by uh, health professionals across the country to stay home, to not celebrate with others. And so, obviously, COVID is still very much a part of our lives. But with people being vaccinated, the impact is changing. And so, I think that, you know, the holiday season is important to a lot of people for many different reasons. 
And uh, people just want to return to normal as much as possible. And so uh, we will see an increase in spending this year, and that's what our survey tells us, quite significantly from last year. And I think it's really because people just want to celebrate, they want to feel a little bit normal, and they want to resume traditions that are important to their family. Uh, Last year and during the pandemic, we certainly saw uh, the increase in online sales and and retailers pivot to do more online sales service and such. How do you think that will compare? Will, Will that stay the same and they just add more retail to it now, more bricks and mortar? So we know that in online shopping will continue to be strong, but we are seeing this year or we will see that in-store shopping is going to increase. And once again, I think that's emphasizing the importance um, of people wanting to go back into stores. It provides them with a little bit of a different experience. They can see what they're purchasing. They can touch it. They can smell it. They can do all of those things that they, you know, weren't able to do for, for quite a significant amount of time, depending which province you lived in. I mean, in Ontario last year, we had over 150 days of closures. And so people were forced to go online. So online is going to continue to be strong, um, but we are going to see in-store shopping increase this year. Uh, We have certainly heard over the uh, past several months about supply chain shortages in virtually every uh, industry. Many have said, obviously, toys, you have to shop early, you should start shopping early. Has this created more hype? The longer you shop, the more you're going to buy. Well, it may have created more hype, but there's also a lot of truth to the need to shop early, especially if you're looking for a particular item, a particular model, a particular brand. And so that we do anticipate that the retail availability of some items might be tighter than in years past. We don't want to raise the alarm bells and say that there's not going to be any supply. Um, We do have a lot of supply challenges right now. But it's for certain products and certain categories. I mean, you've mentioned toys. That is one. Um, seasonal accessories, um, some electronics, um, some bigger ticket items like furniture and appliances and those types of things. Um, and so we definitely, um, you know, encourage people to shop uh, early. So those that plan ahead and shop early are definitely going to increase their chance of finding the product of the brand that they want for this holiday season. But again, as you brought up earlier, if there are is just so, so much of a need for people to want to participate, even if they can't get what they want in the size and the color, whatever, they're probably going to walk out with something. Absolutely. There's tons of substitutes. And so um, consumers will need to be flexible if they leave it, uh, if they leave their purchase a little bit later. You know, we maybe some consumers will put off making that purchase altogether, but there is certainly product on the shelves. Consumers don't need to worry about that. I mean, there's other uh, benefits to shopping early as well. You avoid the long lineups last year. We also saw a lot of issues with shipping and delivery delays. And so there are a lot of reasons why it's a great idea to start shopping. Um, Most, our survey shows us that many people plan to do their shopping. Uh, They'll start in November. They do plan to take advantage of um, the uh, holiday, um, the holidays such as the Black Friday, the Cyber Monday. So we're definitely going to see an increase in Canadians this year taking advantage of those holiday sales um, for the reason of product availability and the other things. That you, talk, about. you talked about shortages in certain in certain segments and such. We saw uh, last year bicycles, uh, you know, depending on what season you came in and then winter skis or cross-country skis or what have you. Are we going to see the same sort of thing this year as we head into the winter months? 
We definitely will see some shortages, and again, that's because of the supply chain um, issues that you talked about. I mean, we live in a global society, and for many of the products that we see on our shelves, parts of those products um, or the whole product itself is often sourced overseas, whether it's you know, packaging or labels or, um, you know, a component of the product. And so we have seen that countries such as China and Vietnam, where they are dealing with um, very severe COVID outbreaks, um, their response has been to shut down their port. Um, they've shut it down for a week uh, in recent weeks. And so those kinds of measures really do have impact on the global supply chain. And so it's for those reasons that we will see um, you know, shortages or delays in products, um, really, you know, quite broad when you consider um, the types of products that come from overseas. Michelle Wasilishin has been with us of the Retail Council of Canada talking about the upcoming holiday season shopping schedule and how supply chains and COVID-19 global pandemics can affect it all. Uh, Michelle, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. You too. Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will on the board. Ted and Diana in the newsroom. Jump into the fun. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines always open. 905-645-3221. Start 9900 on your cell. Your last word coming up uh, moments from now. Scott Radley with us. Host of the Scott Radley Show. Columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. And he is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Always well. Scott, how are you? I'm doing very well. Did you see the footage of the plane landing on the 407? Well, I saw the footage of the plane driving along the 407. Is there actual footage of the landing? All of a sudden, I just see this plane yes. in the shoulder whipping along. Yes. Uh, look at the extended video and look way, way up the frame uh, as it starts. Because sort of where the camera is, it's where the plane comes to rest. All right. So you have to look farther up the road. But really, Scott, it comes down on the 407. He goes over a bridge and then touches it down on the pavement and goes under a sign overhang and then keeps going and eventually comes to a stop. Thank God it was the 407, which is, you know, the highway for the rich that no one can afford to go on. So there's nobody on it. So as the as the plane came down, uh, he had lots of open space to land. The traffic saw him and just slowed down. Whereas if this was on the 400 or the 401, uh, it would have been a completely different story, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, could you have landed on just like bouncing off the roof of car after car after car, bumper to bumper? I don't know, but uh, no, look, I mean, I, I heard about this. I saw part of the clip. Obviously, I haven't seen the, the whole thing. I didn't find that one, but give this guy credit. I, I assume, yeah. I don't know, you say guy. I'm assuming it's a guy who was flying, but give the so, pilot, uh, Two pilots, apparently one was an instructor. <laughs> so there you go. Imagine there if you you're go. learning to fly and you get mechanical error. Uh, mechanical problems after apparently this was the maiden flight after a maintenance check too. So well, that would um, be nice. This this, this yeah. student will never fly again as long as they live. <laughs> this was the only ter- only lesson they're ever taking in flying. But yeah, good for how to crash. The only la- the only thing I've learned is how to crash land. I've learned how to bring a plane down Sully style. It's like the uh, what's his name, the pilot on the movie Airplane, where he had to go up there. Yeah. And go up- fighter pilot and take over to land the jet it's uh well good for them for making this making this happen because i mean look we don't even want to joke about what the other no. op- what the other option was and so you know however you do it and i've seen these before i mean there have been planes that have landed on oh, roads yeah. before and you, you know if there's an open bit of road it's smart i mean why wouldn't you aim for the flat paved giant endless runway that that seems like the the, the wise thing to do wouldn't it be so- 
somebody said there was an instructor involved. And again, this is all very preliminary. Uh, but if, if it was in fact, uh, you know, an instructor and a student, would that, would you get your money back for that? Does that lesson count? <laughs> or do you have to pay more? Cause really you've just taken an very advanced landing, uh, advanced lesson in crash avoidance. Okay. So now I've never flown a plane. I don't think. No, I've never flown a plane. I've been in a cockpit, but I've never, and I've flown with snowbirds, but didn't actually fly the thing. But I took driver's lessons. I'm assuming you took driving lessons yes, as well sir. at some yes. point. So I had this, I wish I could remember his name. I had this little Italian man who was my instructor who sat in the passenger seat while I was trying to learn to drive. And he had his left arm extended behind my back on the like headrest behind my seat. Yeah. And every time he wanted me to turn, he just smacked the side of my head. (laughs) (laughs) Tweak an ear, whatever direction I want you to turn. Well, at the time, I thought, this is really annoying. And then I thought afterwards, you know, I'm probably not going to have more of a distracting situation in my car ever. (laughs) So he set the bar so that I can deal with anything now. He just go, turn, poop. <laughs> oh man, boy, times have changed since we were kids, haven't they, uh, Scott? That might All be right. a cult right now. Yeah, really, exactly. Uh, you want to preview what's on the show tonight? Uh, we are talking. Uh, I think this is a really interesting one. You, did you hear about this interview Jean Chrétien did the other day? Yes. And there was a bunch of things that he said. He took some shots at the current Trudeau government and all the rest. But he was asked about uh, reconciliation, and he was the former, of course, Minister of Indian Affairs for six years. Yep. While while uh, the schools were still going, residential schools. And he says, I never heard anything about abuses. And, you know, it's really interesting that we are, well, not we, not you and I, but people in our society are tearing down statues of people who built these and ran these. And I'm wondering if we're coming to the day when the more modern politicians are going to start finding themselves in the in the bad books of those who say any any misbehavior, any bad moves, anything you did wrong, you must be taken away and you know who the one politi- of those politicians might be absolutely uh his his father has an airport named after him uh, i love the cartoon in the hamilton spectator today graham knocked it out of the park uh, and, and 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 really just uh, you know highlights exactly what you're saying kudos to, to him for that but it's it's we're in a time now when you now uh, are we far enough now i'm not in favor by the way of all the statue removal and everything else just for the record but are we far enough away or close enough to, I'm not sure what the phrase is, that even modern politicians have to be wiped off the face of the earth and their legacy has to be gone because of things they did. And if so, you would think that the guy who was the Minister of Indian Affairs while the residential schools were still going would be front of the list. Great issue. Uh, Trudeau Airport, and I believe Pierre Trudeau was the last one to approve the last residential set of residential schools. So uh, do you remove the name of uh, Trudeau Airport in Montreal? Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. He's coming up moments from now. As always, Scott, thanks, and have a great show. Thanks, Scott. You do. Well, 550. Yeah, thanks so much. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Ted and Diana and Will for all participating. And as always, we leave it to you, the good listenership, for the last word. About that plane landing on the 407, just wait until he gets hit with the toll for that. Not to mention luggage.